Welcome to this episode of the 74 and West Exclusives podcast. The past year has seen mind-boggling levels of federal spending, thanks mostly to the coronavirus pandemic. Beginning during the Trump administration, Congress has passed six major bills, costing nearly $6 trillion. As of this recording, a bipartisan infrastructure bill totaling another trillion dollars has passed the Senate, and President Biden continues to push for a $1.8 trillion American Families Plan. None of this is back pocket money, but rather additional accumulated debt or possibly higher taxes. For this year, we're looking at a budget shortfall of about $3 trillion and a level of total government debt greater than 90% of GDP, a level we haven't seen since World War II. So, what are the implications of these kinds of numbers for the broader economy and for investors? To help get answers to these questions, 74 and West Exclusives producer Derek Burnett spoke with economist Dr. Robert Shapiro, founder of Sonicon Inc., which provides economic policy and market analysis to many Fortune 100 companies and leading nonprofit institutions. Dr. Shapiro also advises senior members of Congress and the Biden administration. He served as Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton White House and has been an economic advisor to presidential candidates Al Gore, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. He's currently on the faculty of the Georgetown University School of Business. Derek Burnett takes it from here. Dr. Shapiro, we're thrilled to have you with us today. Uh, It's a pleasure, Derek, but call me Rob, please. I'll do that. Thank you. Well, let's start then with a, a very broad question. So obviously, nobody wanted a pandemic, and desperate times do call for desperate measures. But are you concerned about all of this spending and proposed spending in terms of the economic outlook? Well, the first thing we need to do is distinguish one-time spending from continuing spending. What you had in the COVID relief bills were large infusions of cash into a crippled economy on a one-time basis. The economic impact of this kind of one-time spending was simply to stabilize the economy in the face of very high unemployment and in the face of very high personal savings. And why were Americans suddenly saving so much money? When the pandemic hit, no one knew how bad it was going to be. No one knew whether they might be personally affected. They might lose their jobs. They might get so sick they couldn't work. And so you had this enormous increase in what economists call precautionary savings. The personal saving rate went from 7.5% to over 20%. Actually, at one time it peaked at 26%. Now, people were saving at this enormous rate because they were afraid that otherwise they might not be able to make their mortgage or car payments. And so they saved in order to prevent that. Well, all that saving came out of the resources that people had to spend. And so the government, in effect, replaced those resources so that people could both save and continue to spend 
so that the economy didn't sink into a depression. Did that infusion of cash make a difference? That one-time spending of several trillion dollars was absolutely good for the economy. (laughs) In the absence of it, we would be in a very, very deep recession today. Uh, Instead, we've got very rapid growth. But as Dr. Shapiro says, long-term spending is a different beast from a one-time infusion of cash into the economy. We have to distinguish that from the infrastructure proposals, both the physical infrastructure and the social infrastructure that the administration are proposing today. And they come to three to four trillion dollars. But again, step back and remember that's three to four trillion dollars over 10 years. So we're really talking about increases in spending of 300 to 400 billion dollars a year on average. That's not peanuts. <laughs> That's a substantial increase in government spending. 300 billion dollars in a 22 trillion dollar economy is equal to just one and a half percent of GDP. Now, that's a big increase for one year, but it is not something that sends the markets into a swoon. (laughs) And you're absolutely right that over time, that spending will have to be paid for. That's a big increase in taxes that would have to be financed. But does it really make economic sense to be passing a big infrastructure bill right on the heels of that one-time pandemic spending? The focus on infrastructure focuses the spending on areas in which we have seen underinvestment in recent decades. There is a need for additional investment in broadband, in bridges and roads and highways, in water treatment plants and ports. These are all common facilities that, if they're in good repair, make the economy more efficient. It takes you less time to get to work. You save time, which is money. It it takes less time and less wear and tear to move goods from one place to another. All of these things contribute to the economy so long as the investments are made wisely. <laughs> now you can you know, invest in a road to nowhere, and it won't do anything for the economy. The outstanding question, however, is this large increase in spending, do we have the resources to make use of it? Because, for example, you know, it's going to entail, let's take just as an example, a lot of steel or a lot of cement right, to repair roads and bridges. Sure. Um, And it will require a lot of workers uh, to both produce that and to then use it in the infrastructure. So the question is, given the amount that we project to spend on those things, is there enough concrete and steel? Are there enough workers? Because if there aren't, then you get inflation rather than productive investment. And, um, you know, we will we'll have to see, frankly. Well, that's actually uh, what I wanted to ask you about next. Um, we're starting to hear criticism from the Republican aisle about 
all of this borrowed money flooding the economy and, and, and driving up inflation. And in fact, until recently, we hadn't really seen significant inflation, um, you know, despite years of expansionary monetary policy, plus right. these big relief packages. But recently, almost overnight, we've started to see consumer prices begin to surge. The June report right. shows more than a 5% year-on-year increase. So, yeah. you know, obviously inflation is a very complex thing, not just caused by one factor at all. But what are your thoughts about the potential impact of these spending packages on inflation? Well, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to wait and see. We know that a lot of the current inflation is due to what what we can think of as bottlenecks. That is, the economy closed down and then grew very slowly for almost a year. And in response, producers produced a lot less. They produced a lot less glass. They produced a lot less timber. Nobody was buying houses. And then the economy reopened. And there was all this pent-up demand for all those things. Well, it takes a while for all the producers to get their entire production lines going again. And not just here. You know, we depend, for example, on uh, lots of electronic products from China and Malaysia and Bangladesh, for that matter, and India. Well, they have been slow to get going again, and everything is coming in at once, and so ports get overwhelmed. So so part of what's happening now is a kind of transition inflation. To oversimplify, you don't just get inflation when there's a lot of extra money in the economy. You also get it when demand for consumer products exceeds supply. And Dr. Shapiro says that's more or less where the pandemic has left us. I'm not worried about that. Uh, What economists worry about is exactly what you've said, that you are pushing so much demand into the economy, so much money into the economy. Um, Do we have the resources to satisfy it? Because if we don't, then all that money will just bid up the price of everything. Another factor affecting inflation is wages, and the stagnation of wages in recent decades is probably one reason we haven't seen much inflation. But that may be changing. We are beginning to see some wage inflation, uh, and that is that can lead to long-term problems with inflation. Again, we have to see whether they last. A lot of people are reevaluating what they've been doing. You know, a pandemic gives you perspective in that respect. Yeah. And so a lot of, in particular, low-wage workers who had received these big checks from the government, along with everybody else or nearly everybody else, and they're taking more time before they go back to jobs that they probably didn't like and weren't very well paid. And so we are seeing some increase in wages towards the bottom of the labor pool. Which just might be worth some increased risk of inflation. That's probably a good thing. At the old minimum wage, no one could support a family. You work 40 hours a week all year at a minimum wage job, and you can't support your family. And so it's a good thing if 
all full-time jobs in America pay a wage that keeps a family out of poverty. That's kind of the promise of capitalism, isn't it? Sure. Speaking of inflation, I've I've heard you talk in the past about a unique set of circumstances that for the past several years has kept inflationary pressure out of the realm of goods and services so that it was expressed elsewhere in the economy. Can you yes. walk us through that and tell us where that inflation has been occurring? Sure. You know, one of the things that has happened certainly during the pandemic, but it was also happening, it's been happening for the last decade, is that the Federal Reserve has been pushing credit into the economy, pushing money into the economy. That has multiple benefits. They do this not only to keep interest rates very low, which is good for consumers, good for business investors, but also to stimulate the economy. The economy took an enormous blow in the financial crisis. It never really 100% recovered. The fact is that the period since then has seen slower growth than the six or seven years before the financial crisis and much lower growth than we saw in the preceding decades under President Clinton and also under President Reagan. So in an attempt to try to increase investment, really, so that the economy would be more productive and could grow faster, the Fed has pushed trillions of dollars into the economy. And in particular, during the coronavirus pandemic, pushed about $3.5 trillion uh, into the economy, both for that purpose, but also to keep financial markets stable. But the financial crisis and the pandemic were two different kinds of challenges. You know, the financial crisis was centered in the, in the financial sector. Mm-hmm. The pandemic economic crisis was centered in the real economy, in the rest of the economy. What the Fed wanted to be sure of was that we didn't get a financial crisis on top of this terrible pandemic impact on the economy. So they pushed all this credit into the system. But remember that abnormally high rate of savings during the pandemic? Where was that credit going to go when people were saving a lot and not consuming a lot? And businesses certainly weren't going to invest in a period of dramatic uncertainty. Instead of going into the real economy, it went into assets, into asset markets. And what are the big asset markets? Stocks, bonds, housing, art, cryptocurrencies. And we've seen enormous increases in the value of these assets. You know, the S&P 500 is 40% higher than it was after the pandemic began. It's way higher than it was before the pandemic. Why is that? Because you push this much credit into the economy, this much money, and it's got to go somewhere. You know, when it comes to assets, we don't call it inflation. We call it a bubble. (laughs) Right. We have bubbles in all of these markets right now. And that's just from the infusion of all this money from the Fed. So so what do you think uh, investors should do with that insight, this idea (laughs) that, that valuations may be inflated for the reasons that you just talked about? Well, um, they ought to 
keep it in mind. <laughs> um, a, uh, you know, I never give investment advice, uh, not to friends, and certainly I would never presume to give it to your listeners, uh, because economists are not that great at that. It, you know, investment is about picking companies or picking sectors. And, you know, my my talent here is understanding the movements of the overall economy, and that's very different. Okay. Um, well, well, let's talk about the, the fact that there is a there is a bubble here. Um, yes. it, it's obviously never good when a bubble bursts. You want it to, right. you want the correction to be gradual. Correct. Is, is this the sort of thing that policymakers should try to correct for, or do we just let the market do its own correction, perhaps like what we're starting to see now in the stock well, market? Well, I think that um, the government has to keep out of it except for the Fed, which can't keep out of it. Because the Fed's basic mandate on a day-to-day basis, you know, it has a mandate to support growth and support employment and to do it in a way that means that the price increases are moderate. But its day-to-day responsibility is to maintain the stability of markets. And so the Fed has a responsibility to unwind all this quantitative easing in a gradual way to let the markets know what's going to happen so the markets can prepare and, you know, to be sensitive to how the markets are responding. When a bubble bursts, Dr. Shapiro says, it's usually because something that nobody was paying attention to suddenly reared its head. You know, we had a financial crisis that came out of an explosion in mortgage-backed derivative securities. That is, securities that were based on mortgages, but not the mortgages themselves. Um, And nobody had paid attention to that market, frankly. Uh, It was unregulated, and that was, frankly, a mistake by the Clinton administration near the end of its term that Congress insisted on that you couldn't regulate these derivatives. And it was a big mistake. Paul Volcker warned about it. Other people did. I actually warned about it, but much more important that Paul Volcker (laughs) warned about it. And they ignored him. And because people were making a lot of money selling these derivatives, Suddenly they collapsed, and they collapsed because lots of mortgages became unsustainable. The lesson? If we have a crisis in the markets, it will probably come from something we're not paying attention to, because if we paid attention to it, we would take steps. But, as Dr. Shapiro goes on to say, a stock market crash is not the only kind of crisis the government is responsible for avoiding. The government has one other responsibility to head off a crisis, and that is all this infrastructure spending that the, that the government is proposing, that the administration is proposing, both in the bipartisan bill and in the additional legislation that the administration will pass through reconciliation, I expect. We have to pay for it. That has to include ways to get revenues to pay for it. And that will be very reassuring to the markets. 
Markets get very nervous if government gets irresponsible. The markets loved the fact that the government supported the economy in the midst of all of the downward pressures from the pandemic. So the market went up, and the $4 trillion in credit supported that uh, or drove it. But the markets expect us to pay for long-term investments. Pay for it if you're going to pass it. Only pass as much as you're willing to pay for, first of all. You know, so if if you can only find $2 trillion in, re- in additional revenues over 10 years, that tells you how big the infrastructure bill should be. That idea of limiting the scope, the size of the bill to what can, you know, what can be found in future revenue is very simple and intuitive. Does it ever really play out that way? Well, um, I'm happy to say it did in the Clinton years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we, um, we, we passed new spending and we passed new taxes. We reduced other spending in order to increase some spending. Um, and people don't remember, we had four years of budget surpluses. Right. You know, it's the first surpluses we'd seen in decades. And the last we've seen in decades. And the last we've seen. And I will tell you, one of the, one of the keys to that was that Bill Clinton really believed in economics, and he placed national-level economists throughout the government, really leading economists in the White House, in the Treasury Department, in the State Department, in the Labor Department, in the Commerce Department, and that meant that every policy proposal came across the desk of economists who could think through the economic significance of it. And frankly, he was the last president to do that, to really put that much trust in professional economists. He wasn't saying, you should tell me what to do. He was saying, you should tell me what the economic implications are of what I want to do. Yeah, it sounds like he was very you know, wise about seeking good counsel uh, in terms of economics. I was actually thinking to ask you um, whether there were any of the politicians that you have advised over the years who stood out as having a particularly strong grasp of economics themselves. Would you attribute that to Bill Clinton as well, or was it more Absolutely. Just, yeah. Absolutely. And the reason was, I mean, look, he was very, you know, he was very smart. He is very smart. We've had other very smart presidents, some not so smart. But certainly Barack Obama was very smart. And so it was not just that he was smart. It was that he was really interested. Yeah. <laughs> and had been his whole career. You know, he, he came from a state in which the challenge of creating good jobs with good wages was always a tough one. Arkansas didn't have Silicon Valley. Right. <laughs> So he figured out, you know, he well, he talked to economists who gave him lots of lots of alternatives. Certainly Obama listened to his economists, but his focus was really not on the economy, it was on social policy, in particular health care. President Trump rejected economics. His view was that he understood better than economists, and there were almost no economists in his administration. 
there was one, Kevin Hassett, who was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and a fine economist, and I have full disclosure, a friend of mine. But Trump didn't listen to him. You know, his view was, you know, trade was actually not so good for the country because it led to trade deficits and they were terrible. So we should limit trade with tariffs and other barriers. What Shapiro says President Trump got wrong about trade deficits is viewing them as a simple scorecard. The trade deficit, it's a funny thing. First of all, it goes up when our consumption goes up because so much of what we consume are imports. It goes up whenever our growth is faster than other countries because that means uh, our consumption of their exports is rising faster than their consumption of our exports because their growth is slower. It also goes up because people want to hold dollar assets. A substantial share of U.S. Treasury bonds are held by foreigners, foreign governments and foreign investors. And when I say substantial, I'm talking about more than a third of U.S. stocks are held by foreigners. They want to invest in U.S. bonds and U.S. stocks. That's a good thing. But to do it, they need dollars. <laughs> because you can't buy U.S. stocks or U.S. bonds with uh, euros or yen. So you got to get U.S. dollars. Well, how do you get U.S. dollars? You sell goods <laughs> to the United States and we pay for them in dollars. Mm -hmm. Right. So part of the trade deficit reflects the fact that foreigners want to invest in the United States. All of this eluded Trump. You know, he just saw us giving money to them. <laughs> As a final portion here, I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, you, you said a few minutes ago that, that markets get nervous when they think that the government is acting irresponsibly. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about doomsday, um, since a lot of people who are concerned about government debt are worried about a day of reckoning when the debt burden becomes so unsustainable that the economy collapses. There's a very influential 2010 economic study about countries with high levels of debt relative to mm -hmm. their GDP. Mm -hmm. And according to that study, when a country's debt reaches about 90% of GDP, it it's headed for an economic crash. And the U.S. is currently right around that supposed threshold. So can you tell us a little bit about that study and why the U.S. might be an exception to this supposed 90% rule of thumb? Well, you know, it's not just the United States that's an exception. You know, Japan uh, has a debt that's equal to over 200% of its GDP. But the Japanese save a lot. So they can finance that through their savings. And then they export a lot. So, in effect, they depend on external demand. So, the fact that people are saving doesn't mean that there's no demand for them to produce things. So, it depends on the circumstances of the country. And what circumstances make the U.S. an exception to this 90% of GDP rule? Okay, you look at our debt, and uh, it is high by historical measures. But again, you know, a lot of it is being held by foreign countries who have so much of it that they can't dump it. Because <laughs> if they tried to dump it, they would lose a fortune. The United States remains 
the most productive economy in the world. And that means people want to invest in it. So the question of, is the debt too much, is really a question of, are there people who will continue to buy it? And can you afford to pay the interest on it? If you can't, then the debt defaults and the economy collapses. Well, no one has any doubt that we're going to be able to service the debt, that we can always find the money to pay the interest on it. And certainly in this era, so long as we remain productive, so long as we remain the engine of innovation in the global economy, producing software and goods and materials that the rest of the world wants and which work for our own economy. So long as we continue to do that, I think our debt is certainly sustainable. But that doesn't mean our economy is invincible. I will tell you the biggest threat, I think, to the dollar, uh, which is kind of another way of saying, you know, what happens when investors lose confidence in an economy and there's a crash is not in the economy, but in our political stability. One of the reasons that everyone wants to invest in the United States is because everyone believes in the basic stability of our regime, that we are not suddenly going to change our laws, that we're not suddenly going to double our taxes, that there is a rule of law so that contracts that people have with American companies will always be honored that their intellectual property rights are protected. All of this falls under the rubric of a stable political system. And to me, the greatest threat to the economy comes from a loss of confidence in our political stability. And that is a real and live issue right now in the attacks on the uh, election outcome. Which leads to the question, did the attack on the election erode the market's faith in the continued stability of the United States, and thus faith in its future ability to service its debt? You know, right now, the world and the market say, okay, the United States is proceeding. You know, yes, they've got this, this problem with a uh, delusion that is, that is being believed by significant numbers of people, but the institutions held. The courts said... There's no evidence of this. No, we're not uh, touching the election. Congress certified it despite an attempt to violently prevent them from doing so. And that has reassured investors and markets. But should that confidence begin to decay because of additional events, that would be a terrible thing for the U.S. economy. And as you suggest, a terrible thing for the entire global economy, since it's all yes. so intertwined. Yes, and not to speak of for the prospects that our children will live in a democracy. Right, right. Well, on that very cheerful note, <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, before I let you go, I, I just wanted to ask one final question sure. here. I, I know that you've kind of begged off uh, the idea of offering investment advice, but um, – <laughs> Just in case I hadn't hit on it in any of these questions, I just wanted to ask, what do you think is most important for investors to know about or keep in mind in terms of the potential impact of high levels of government spending and debt 
whether or not we pay for it. If, for example, they were to pass a $3 trillion over 10 years infrastructure package without paying for it, I think there'd be a big negative market response, and there should be. But Dr. Shapiro leaves us with one more sobering thought. Look, there is one other unknown here, and that is, is the pandemic coming back? That's something we don't know. I was just reading, we're starting to see some whispers in the press about the the potential need for another relief package. Uh, Well, I think we're some ways from that now, but if this new wave really gets out of control, then we could find ourselves back in summer of 2020. And this is all up to the people. It's not up to the government. The government is doing everything it should be in providing access to vaccines for everybody. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure and um, certainly learned a lot talking with you. My pleasure. Anytime, Derek. I'm happy to spend a half hour or an hour with you and your listeners. And that is this episode of the 74 and West Exclusives podcast. Our guest today was Dr. Robert Shapiro, founder of Sonicon Inc., which provides economic policy and market analysis to many Fortune 100 companies and leading nonprofit institutions. Dr. Shapiro served as an Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton White House, and he advises senior members of Congress and the Biden administration. Plenty of other episodes of the 74 and West Exclusives podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or just come to 74andwest.com, that's 74-A-N-D-W-E-S-T.com. There you'll not only find every episode of the 74 and West Exclusives podcast, but you'll also find engrossing text interviews and so much more. Until next time, be well.